Bethlehem. Dark. Quiet. A resting town. Once bustling, now still. An innkeeper's stable, once calm, now astir. The tender cry of a newborn has pierced through the hush. Around a makeshift cradle, a small audience of witnesses gaze upon the baby boy with awe and wonder. This humble infant is the fulfillment of a centuries-old promise. The longed-for Savior is here. Emmanuel is indeed among them. His young mother kneels, overwhelmed by the miracle of his birth. Mere months ago, this child was a prophecy, and now here he lies before her, a reality. For centuries of silence, heaven and nature waited on a promise. This very night, a prophetic chorus resounds as hope is fulfilled in the lowly city of Bethlehem, born of a virgin from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, emerges the promised king. Swaddled in that manger lies Jesus, the fulfillment of all David was and yet could not be. Like Mary, we can treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. Humanity now stands with secure assurance, knowing God has not failed us. Hope has come through for us. With the same eyes of awe and wonder, co-witnesses to all that God has done, may our hearts kneel at his manger. Let us look not to gifts of things, but let us turn our attention to the one who is the gift himself, Jesus. Just as the light of his birth broke through the darkness of humanity's waiting, his light daily breaks through the boundless darkness of this weary world. Jesus is the one and only light of the world. Oh, it's Christmas. You guys excited? I am excited. Uh, I am excited every year as we walk into this season because it affords us in a unique way, the opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus and set our hearts and minds on things above, something we ought to be doing all year round. But in the Christmas season, it uniquely affords us a particular staring into the beautiful redemptive work of Jesus on our behalf by the very fact that first and foremost, he arrived on planet Earth. And that is the start of something extraordinary. And as much as I love walking into the Christmas season here where we live, I have often thought how much I would love to have been on this planet at the very first encounter of the arrival of Jesus. Have you ever played those little games where it asks a question like, if you could pick one time in history that you could go back and be part of, or one person you can meet that you have to pick? I mean, I have a lot of places I'd love to be, a lot of experiences I'd love to encounter, but I think the more I year over year encounter the first arrival and the people that encountered his first arrival, the more I think if I had to pick a place, I think I'd want to pick to be in Bethlehem and in the uh, ensuing days beyond that at the first arrival of Jesus because the incredible, profound nature of what those people must have been experiencing is beyond my imagination. I mean, I've traveled through the Christmas story 
for decades now, year after year, and I still can't get to a place where I just look at this and I go, I can't imagine what it must have been like. Not, not just because Jesus was arriving, not just because they would have experienced the supernatural nature of that time, but because of the collision that that arrival was in view of the long waiting in which they had stood as a people. And that this was the culmination, the embodiment of hope for them. You understand, as I'm sure you may know, that the people uh, of God, the Jewish people, had been waiting a very, very long time for a Messiah, a savior, because their life was like our life. They lived on this planet where the daily experience of this planet wasn't one that lent itself to happy, happy, right? There's happy moments, don't get me wrong, but big picture, they lived for centuries under the occupation of, the oppression of other nations. So their entire experience is that we are oppressed by other humans. We are negatively impacted by other humans. And they lived with the same uncertainties that we live in of the reality of resources and our well-being if we have enough of them or our lack of well-being if we don't. Always wondering, what's tomorrow going to hold? Are we going to be okay? We're under the oppression of another space. And they struggled like we do with the realities of this planet and sin and its impact on our bodies. They got sick. They grew old. They died. So all of these things were the daily experience of the people. And God had spoken over the centuries to his people saying, someday one will come who will set all of this right. One will come who will meet those felt needs and that will change everything. One will come that will remove you from oppression and set you free from the impact of the other humans and nations who oppress you. One will come who will have the power to heal that which is broken in you, your sickness and disease and struggle. One will come that will offer you resource to such an extent, his kingdom that you will live in so that you will never again have to be uncertain on whether you're going to be okay because he will be your king. I mean, can you imagine? Wouldn't you want that? Yeah. That, was a, that, was a, that was a little confusing. That's just a, m- a minute of confusion for me right there. Like, are you all doing that well? Wow. I'm like, would you? No, I'm good. Per- personally, I'm, I got all the resources I've ever needed. I'll never be uncertain in my life again. I'll, I never get sick and I'm definitely not going to die. And frankly, the other humans are wonderful. I'm just curious. Wouldn't you want that? Yeah. Yes. And so they have been waiting and waiting. And then into this space comes this encounter with the baby, uh, this baby that's arriving. And I want you to know that when Jesus arrived, the people that encountered him first were not wondering whether he was the Messiah. They weren't guessing at it. They didn't sit in that moment of his birth and go, gosh, I, I wonder if it's actually him. It could be him. Maybe it's him. They all encountered supernatural events that made it clear that it was him. Mary did not birth Jesus and go, Joseph, what do you think? You think he's a Messiah? I'm not sure. I mean, it could be, maybe. See, because she had encountered Gabriel, an angel that showed up and said to her, Mary, I just want you to know that a child is going to be conceived inside of your womb Not naturally, supernaturally. You will have a child that you shouldn't have. You with me so far? And by the way, that child will be the Messiah. He didn't just say, Mary, you're going to have a child. You're not going to know how. I'm not going to tell you who it is. No, he was like, this is the Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for. So she carried the child knowing supernaturally by both experience and declaration, this was the child. This was the promised Messiah. When the shepherds showed up, they didn't show up like they were in the fields. And one of the shepherds said, hey guys, should we head down to Bethlehem again? It's Friday. We go every week just to make sure that the Messiah might not show up today. 
It, it didn't happen that way. They weren't rolling into Bethlehem week after week on a whim that maybe a baby would be born, maybe in a manger and it might be the Messiah. They didn't walk into that room going, oh, hi, any chance this might be him? No, what happened to them? First an angel and then an entire mass of them showed up so much so that they fell down in fear of death. And what did those angels tell them? Fear not, go into Bethlehem because who's there? The Messiah. When they showed up, they were showing up in the room like, we were just told by glowing folk that this is it. (laughs) They had no doubt that this was the Messiah. The wise men that traveled, even Simeon, who was the first to hold him to bless Jesus. You remember that story? When God spoke to Simeon and said, you are holding the one I told you you would hold before you die, the Messiah. Simeon wasn't like, I, I feel like this baby feels a little different. There's a vibe. <laughs> the encounters that these people had of this child were supernatural in nature. And so they came in knowing who he was. And in that knowing, they also then knew that he embodied their hope. That's what we say of Jesus. He embodies hope. He is hope personified. What does it mean to embody hope? So here's the definition of of hope, right? The dictionary definition. The feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. The feeling that what is wanted could be had. You with me? That sounds like hope, right? I have a feeling that I want something and I think I'm going to get it. That's what we call hope. So what would we say then is hope fulfilled? When you have what you hoped for, then we say hope is now fulfilled. So when the people were waiting for a Messiah to come to set them free and the Messiah shows up and they're told supernaturally it's him, what is embodied in that baby? Their hope. So they might say rightly, he is the fulfillment of our hope. He embodies hope. You with me so far? Then when Jesus grew up into an adult, the people that experienced him on this planet would also have been able to say, Jesus embodies hope because that was their experience of him. When he traveled to these villages and they had heard through the the regular grapevine that there is one who may be the Messiah, when he showed up in the town, he would teach in that town. And when he taught, what did the people say of Jesus? He teaches with such authority like we have never heard before. He shows us things we've never seen before, never understood. We see beyond what we've ever seen. Who is this rabbi? He transcends all the other rabbis. So their experience of Jesus's wisdom was something otherworldly. And then what would Jesus do? Not only would he teach with great power and authority and wisdom and reveal mystery, but then he would also affect power in the circumstances of the people's lives and change those circumstances so that what held them under oppression or uncertainty or struggle, pain, disease, he would often make those things right, displaying that what he's saying he can do, he can do, even in the small everyday pictures. He's going to do it for a nation, but he can do it for a person. And so the people experienced the tangible connection to Jesus being their hope. So their thought was, this Messiah promised by the prophets is going to set us free from our oppressions and he's going to solve our struggles. He's going to free us from disease and struggle and poverty and all those things with his kingdom. So we're going to become a people now who are no longer oppressed and no longer uncertain and no longer stuck. We are free. So our freedom is going to be the result of his establishing his kingdom and he's going to give us everything his kingdom has and we will be free. Yes, absolutely. That is what they understood, and that is true. 
So their experience of Jesus was quite a tangible, he is hope personified. He is hope walking around and he brings hope to us. Man, wouldn't you have loved to live in that space? Whenever I encounter that space, Jesus on the planet doing what he did, born and then as an adult, and the tangible experience of Jesus' being our hope, it always begins to spark a question for me, start a wondering for me, a wondering that doesn't always go to a happy place. See, I, I, I start wondering, okay, we launch from there into the 21st century. Welcome, we're right here. Okay, so we also here say, Jesus is my hope. Ooh. Jesus is the light to my soul. Ooh. But do we really know what that even means? Be be because, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it feels to me like we are more back into where the people were before his birth in our experience than while he was on the planet. Because remember, before he came, they had hope in what they believed would be true, but Jesus wasn't quite there yet. Then they, he came and they experienced him and they're like, "Woo! he is hope, he is life. Nobody, when they said he personifies hope while he was on the planet, didn't know what they were talking about. And now here we are, so many years later, and when we think about Jesus and, and someone says, Jesus is my hope, I think my propensity, I think our propensity is to shift our experience of that hope into the future. We say, yes, he's my hope because he's given me eternal life. And because someday I'll be free of this place and he'll set me free. See what, like the people, I'm stuck now, but someday I won't be stuck and then I'll be free. And my hope is that that's going to happen at some point. So I endure this until then. And that's how he is my hope. But it doesn't feel like he is my hope right here, right now, in this day, in my actual life, with my actual circumstances. It feels like he's my future hope, so it makes today tolerable. But this is not the story of the gospel. This is not what the scripture describes. The scripture describes an experience that we ought to have where he is both our eternal future hope and our very present everyday hope and that he personifies hope for us there, but he also personifies hope for us here. But the question becomes, how? How does that play? How do I experience that? If I'm just honest, how do I experience that? The beauty is that scripture actually gives us the answer. And the answer is found in the same encounters that the people had while he was on the planet, except that it is found in what was happening behind those encounters in those people's lives that at first glance was invisible because we were so caught up in the circumstantial change they were experiencing. Somebody has a problem, he fixes the problem, we're so caught up, it's a miracle that we miss what he was actually doing. But thankfully, scripture bothers to show us what he was actually doing because the authors of the New Testament, after Jesus was on the planet, wrote about it constantly. They said, you may have just thought he was changing people's circumstances and because he was, they were experiencing him as hope. But what he was actually doing and what they were actually experiencing was so much more and it is actually what you experience with him. And our hope is not found primarily uh, in in the change of circumstances, though he may sometimes do that, it is found in something else. What is the something else? Well, it turns out as Jesus begins to encounter people from the very beginning as an adult, we begin to see clues of this and it builds and grows as these encounters increase. It starts with the disciples. When he first encountered the disciples, many of them, uh, all of them, were, were just working ordinary jobs, Right? I mean, they were doing ordinary things, the stuff you do as humans when you're trying to provide for your family and, and, and make a living. Back then, uh, you either did something that produced resources so you could buy food from those who were hunting and fishing, or you did the hunting and fishing. You with me? Like, we don't necessarily have to go kill our food anymore or go catch it. We can roll down to the grocery store, but we have to do work so we have money so we can buy the food that somebody else caught for us, right? 
Some of you are like, oh, what are you talking about? I catch my own stuff. Excellent. Love you. Beautiful. But we don't necessarily have to do that, right? But back then, you either had a job that produced resources so you could buy, or you actually did the work. So most of the disciples, their work was found in the capturing of things. They were, many of them, fishermen, right? So there's their ordinary space. They're fishermen. When Jesus encountered them, he would, he would hang out with them and he'd say, you guys should come with me because I'm up to something far bigger than the job you're doing now and the ordinary life in which you find yourself spinning your wheels. You should follow me. And what would he say to them? Right now you are fishermen, right? But I'm going to make you fishers of men. And immediately the disciples fully understood what that meant. No, no. Like, I'm sure they were like, sounds awesome. You have any idea what he means? I have no idea. But whatever. Like, well, sometimes I think we experience the disciples like, you will be fishers of men. Oh, I'm coming. I'm, I mean, if I were there and I was Peter, I'd be like, I don't even know what that means. But he says something to them. He says to him, you are something right now. And when I'm done with you, I'm going to make you something absolutely other. You are not going to be what you are now. You are going to be something other. And this other thing, though, you can't fully grasp it now. When you get there, nothing will be the same as it is now. See, they didn't know that, but we get to know that because we got to see their story unfold. And did they end up being utterly other? Was the entirety of the way they thought about life, lived life, experienced life other? Yes, because he changed them, right? So we watch the encounters happen. This continues on. As Jesus began to travel through, we see multiple circumstances where somebody will encounter Jesus, but so often in the encounter, whether it included a circumstantial change or didn't, Jesus would regularly articulate something that said, I'm not just changing your circumstances, I'm changing you, and I'm going to tell you that you're changed so that you're not confused. He bumped into a woman in Samaria by a well at some point. She was a woman that lived in Samaria as an outcast of the people of God in general, just because she was a Samaritan. And then she had a shady past, so she was an outcast within her context. And she was at the well alone to avoid all of the realities of who she was and what that meant in her relationship with others, her identity. And she bumps into this rabbi, which is super awkward because now he is something other than her. There couldn't have been a greater chasm between his position and identity and her position and identity. Bottom of the rung societally with a shady past and a brokenness. Top of the rung with a righteous past and a wonder just by being a rabbi, right? And so she's trying to avoid him and he starts talking to her and it gets weird. And in the conversation, he begins to talk with her and ask questions about who she is. And she answers, kind of, sort of, and then he answers more broadly for her. You're actually this. And then he's like, what? Oh my gosh, he knows. And then he begins this journey. But if you come here and you drink from the water that I am, you will never be thirsty again. And he starts speaking in mysteries, not of a circumstance change of water from this planet that keeps you alive, but water that changes you from within. And by the time he's done with her, she rolls into her town. And what does she do? She goes and tells everyone to come and encounter this guy. Why? Because he filled the well with water and it's an unending gushing well now. And there's going to no, because something happened in that conversation that caused her to see, understand and experience that something profoundly changed in her, in who she was and where she was positioned because this guy changed it. He kept doing this. Remember the woman caught in adultery? She gets dragged out and she's going to be stoned to death. Did Jesus prevent her from dying that day? Yes. It's not a trick question. You're like, I don't know. Is it a trick question? He did. Does that matter? Yes. yes. If you were going to die, would it be nice that Jesus changed those circumstances? Yes. So yes, he did that. But then what does he do at the end of that? I mean, wouldn't that be enough? Well, they, they left. <laughs> but instead he gets down and he says, who here condemns you. In other words, who here identifies you 
as you actually find yourself right here, a prostitute, a adulteress, a broken woman, a sinner who identifies you as you currently are. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't think anybody. Neither do I. Now look what he does. He takes her as she is because is she right about who she is? Yeah, is she an adulteress, a prostitute? Uh, yes, yes. But he says, but, but now I don't, so you're not. And then what does he say? Now go live your life differently. Live your life differently because you're alive? Because I stopped them from killing you? No, because who you were when you showed up at my feet is not who you are now. And that will change everything about how you see, experience, and engage in the life around you. And you see this happen constantly. Do you remember the paralytic? You know, the, the, the guys that come and they lower him down from the roof? I mean, he can't walk. What does he want? He wants to walk, obviously. And he gets down to the bottom. You guys may remember this. This was fairly recent. I love this story, right? Because it fascinates me. This story blows my mind because the guy shows up and he's lame and he wants to walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I was like, what? But there in there lies the answer to true freedom. Not a change of circumstance, but a change of personhood a change of identity, a change of the essence of who we know and feel that we are, broken and distant and something not what it should be. And this incredible savior doesn't just come and say, I'll change your circumstances. Something transpires and we're like, oh, I don't think I am what I was when I showed up. And you know what's crazy about that story? I don't know this for sure. When I die, one of my questions, I've got a bunch of them. I'm rolling into Jesus. I'm like, I'm curious. Had the Pharisees not been there, would you have made him walk? Or was it just enough that you, healed, that, that, that you forgave his sins? Because remember, Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. And you feel in the story like he moves on. Like, okay. And then the Pharisees are like, oh my gosh, who is he that he can forgive sins? This is crazy. And he hears them or perceives. And he's like, you all think it's hard to forgive sins. What's harder, forgiving sins or making a guy walk that can't walk? You know, since you guys can't figure it out, I'll help you along the way. You go ahead and walk now. I wonder if he would have made the guy walk if the Pharisees weren't there. But I do know this, whether he did or not, I don't think when I find that guy that I'm going to say to him, would it have mattered after that that you walked? I think he would have said, not one bit. It's great that I could. Really wouldn't have mattered. Because once he looked me in my eyes and said, I know why you're here. You know who you are. And I'm going to make you something else. I'm going to change you. And when you're changed, what you thought mattered stops mattering. What you thought would be the place you'd experience my power and my, my hope won't actually be the places you experience it at all because I've changed you. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus had nothing that he needed from Jesus as far as this world is concerned. He didn't come to Jesus because he was poor and he needed resources. He was rich. He was a tax collector. He didn't come to Jesus because he was sick and he needed help. He didn't come to Jesus because uh, he needed some kind of circumstantial change in his business arenas. In fact, he wasn't even planning to have a conversation with Jesus because he didn't need Jesus. But Jesus knew that he absolutely did because what we need from Jesus is not the change of our circumstances, though that is nice. And when it happens, it's cool, but it's not what we need. What Zacchaeus needed was for Jesus to change him from who he was to who he will be, from one personhood to another, from one identity to another. He was a tax collector. He was a cheater. He was a stealer. He was us. And Jesus came to him and said, we're going to your place. And when he was with him, what did he say to him? I know who you are, but I'm going to make you something else. And Zacchaeus' life forever changed. There's two thieves that stood or, or hung on crosses next to Jesus. Remember these guys? I mean, listen, we all struggle with whether we're really bad or good, right? I mean, you know, we're pretty decent people. I, generally, every now and then we get caught up in some sin. We're like, maybe I'm not that decent. But then we kind of get over it. And we're like, okay, I'm decent again. Like, it's hard to sometimes really embody and, 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 and conceive of how broken and sinful we are. But at the point that you're hanging on a cross because you're the criminal of such a level that they need to kill you, I don't think you wonder anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think at that point you're like, I don't know that I'm that bad. 
Like you're on a cross because you were a murderer. Like at this point, I think we've covered the bases. And these two guys are hanging on the cross and the one guy's like, get me off and I'll, you know, I don't know. If I make some money, I'll pay you. I mean, that's not what he said, but it's that attitude. Like if you do this, then I will, I don't know. And then what does the other guy say? He for a moment perceives who he is. And he just says to Jesus, look, I, I, I don't know where this is all going, but I know that I shouldn't be asking you for anything but if by any chance you could show me mercy as we pass from this space to the next, I'd be real grateful. And what does Jesus say to him? Your freedom is always about what I change you from being into what I change you into being, not what I change in your circumstances. Today, my friend, you and me can be together. So yes, his eternity is immediately changed but as we see in all the other stories, if he lived another day beyond that cross, he would have been so utterly changed anyway, wouldn't he? You see, what we discover in Scripture is that far more powerful than God changing our circumstances to set us free is God changing our personhood to set us free. Because when we are changed and we perceive that change, in other words, we're told and we believe, then suddenly the way we experience the circumstances we needed to be different is utterly changed. And so our hope moves from what Jesus can do for us in our circumstances to what he has done in us and for us as a personhood. And that's what begins to shift. Uh, the Matrix 4 comes out in December. Um, half of you are like, what are you even talking about? I don't understand. And, the, and then half of you are like, do you watch that sci-fi craziness? What for? It's a waste of time. It's Alice in Wonderland sci-fi version. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. But beyond that, The Matrix, the very first movie, is to date still uh, my favorite movie because... More than any movie I've seen before, I mean, the Passion of the Christ doesn't count, just FYI, because obviously that is the gospel story of Jesus. But besides that one, the regular movies, this one displays gospel themes like no other movie I've ever watched. Many movies have gospel themes. This thing is just like, I mean, it's just like thrown at you constantly. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's... So I just love that movie. And number four is coming out, and I'm kind of excited about that. And so I thought it's time to engage in a refresher course. So this week, I watched the first Matrix movie for the 97th, I, I don't know, a lot of times. And it was just as good as the first time. You know why? Because in our human storylines, it seems even the world outside of Scripture, outside of people who know Jesus, still perceive that the true, profound stories are not ones where circumstance change, but where person changes. And when a person sees themselves for who they actually are than rather than who they once were. Everything changes. And this story, perhaps better than anyone, Alice in Wonderland, tells that story, right? So there's this guy. His name is Mr. Anderson. I would play you the scene, but it's in the middle of a fight scene and it would disturb half of you. And so I'm like, I'll just tell you the story. That way you don't have to see the fight. Okay, but pay close attention now. There is a guy called Mr. Anderson. By day, he's a computer programmer in this regular world in which we live. And by night, he is a hacker that develops programs that works around the systems that are holding them back. And his name is Neo. So he's Neo the hacker or Mr. Anderson, the computer programmer. Okay. This begins to divide his world into two spaces. The ordinary person going through the everyday ruts of life, trying to do stuff, and this other person that's different. And there are these authorities, these agents, but they're actually bad guys. You tracking with me so far? And the bad guys, who we think are good guys, but find out later are bad guys, they get him in an office and they tell him, Neo, we know what you're up to. By day, you are Mr. Anderson computer programmer. Woo, good. By night, you are Neo, somebody behind the system. We don't want you to be that guy because it's bad. This sets the storyline for us on Neo being two different people, regular Mr. Anderson and powerful Neo who changes the world. You with me so far? But he doesn't know that yet. Later on in the movie, Morpheus, who is the wise sage, says to Neo, when you know who you are, 
you will be able to do extraordinary things. And Neo says to Morpheus, are you saying that I'll be able to dodge bullets? Oh, I want to dodge bullets. And Morpheus says to Neo, no. What I'm saying is that when you know who you are, you won't have to. See what he just did? Dodging bullets is crazy cool, but what if you don't even have to dodge them? And later on in the movie, FYI, spoiler, if you haven't watched it by now, it's been like 20 years, it's your fault, okay? <laughs> like he literally holds up his hand and the bullets come at him and they stop in midair and he picks them out of the air and I'm like, <laughs> Okay, so Neo is going to become something far more than he can imagine and he's gonna transcend the realities of the world in which he lives in. There is a fight that happens, now we're in the fight scene. You've tracked all the way with me. And he's fighting, guess who? The evil agent. And the evil agent is overpowering him and he's got him down on a train track and he's holding him down and a train's coming. And he keeps calling him, here it is, pay attention. He keeps calling him Mr. Anderson. Why? Why does he keep saying Mr. Anderson? Because he wants to make sure that he remembers that he's nothing but Mr. Anderson. He is not Neo. He is not powerful. He is not a part of another world. He's a part of this world and he's just Mr. Anderson. And he's holding him down and he's, the train's coming. He's like, Mr. Anderson, stare into the inevitability of your death. I mean, I was literally like, it's Satan over me, holding me down. Look, you're nothing. And here's what Neo does. He leans down, overpowered, and he says, my name is... Mr. And I'm just kidding. My name is Neo. And as soon as he says that, he launches up, smashes into the ceiling. The agent falls off him and he launches himself out of the way of the train. And the agent dies. Just FYI. (laughs) And I remember watching this thinking to myself, our true freedom exists. Our true life and power exists when we begin to understand who we are in Christ, not what he's doing for us day to day. Our real hope is something far more transcendent than we could have ever imagined. I have a complicated family, uh, interesting family, uh, uh, big family. And my family's complicated in part because my family is a mix of entry points. So some of my children entered my family via birth and some of my children entered my family via adoption and then Brooke and I entered our family via marriage. So we got three different contexts that made our family our family, right? And in this world, we have a mindset that there are ways that you enter a family that make you more family than other ways. Like if you enter by birth, you're blood and then you're more family. But that's just of this world. The kingdom that we belong to, God's kingdom, does not distinguish between entry points. It actually just says you get in and then you're in. You're with me. Okay. So being a part of this family is where our personhood and identity exists as a unit. And I've always said when my family came together in terms of my children and the entry point through adoption collided with the entry point through birth, it was like two tractor trailers driving at each other at hundred miles an hour. And when we collided them, our dream was one big tractor trailer. But when two tractor trailers collide, just FYI, They don't usually become one beautiful big tractor trailer. They become one horrid disaster. And and that was the beginning experiences of what it takes to take a family and converge and merge in this way. Because of that collision 10 years ago that has been evolving ever since, we, as you can imagine, have very different kinds of days. Some days feel very good. Oh, look at the beautiful family. And then other days are like, and that's just not my experience. That's the experience of every unit within my family. Talk to any one of my kids. They're like, some days are awesome. Some days are terrible. Because the days come and go, the circumstances come and go and they change. And what makes our life really awesome or really not can sometimes feel like depending on what the day is or the week is and what we've said yes to or how well we get along. But the truth is what I've been saying for a decade is that our real journey as a family is not trying to figure out how to keep our days circumstantially happy because they ain't gonna happen. It is helping all 10 of us 
become more aware of what it means that we are family, what it means that we belong to each other, what it means that I am your father or this is your mother, that you are my son or my daughter, that it's enough to be my son or daughter, that I don't need more from you, and that as your father or mother, your safety is who I am and who we are as a family, not what I do for you. This is the grand journey. And all of our kids have to evolve into that as us adults have to. So you know, if you've ever raised teenagers, this is not an exclusive experience of children that enter a family through adoption. It is the experience of every child that enters a family anyway. When they become teenagers, young adults, they look at this family unit and they realize all the things they want, all the hopes they have for their own life. You as parents don't necessarily agree with those hopes and you don't necessarily affect those hopes for them. And then they start looking at you like you're the problem, right? Anybody experience differently? Because this is not about my kids. This is about all of us. All of us did it when we were teenagers and all of us have it done to us by our teenagers, right? They're like, you don't understand. You don't get it. Or my favorite, my very favorite, fun, fun. The second you say no to anything, it's like, you never say yes. You never give me what I want. You never allow this. You always You know what I want to do in those circumstances? I want to go print out the budget. I just want to be rolling. It's not done yet. Line items up the wazoo. If you weren't around seven Ferraris, I could have bought. I want to lay it out and like, there it is. You want to talk about stuff I give you, then let's talk about stuff I say yes to. I want to start pulling out the carpool schedule. We never say yes to anything. Let's pull the carpool schedule out. Let's show you this. Right? Because our propensity as humans, my children, your children, and us when we were children, is to constantly look to what fulfills our immediate needs and circumstances as the means by which we can say you are indeed fulfilling my desires, my feelings of the things I want. And our true freedom comes when we come awake in that young adulthood to go, being part of this family is what afforded me the wonder and opportunities to feel loved and cared for and to have some of the things. Mom and dad, you know, we've talked about this, those young adults that come back and they're like, I'm so sorry. I realize now that you've basically lost your entire life on my behalf. I mean, what, how do you feel then? You're like, thank you, because it's true, right? You see, the true nature of freedom, the true nature of hope, the true nature of life is found in who we become and our person and identity, not in what we have. And when we know who we are, then it doesn't matter where we are anymore when we know who we are. See, what I'm starting to realize as I look at all of this and as I see all this play out is I'm starting to realize that this is what God was communicating constantly in Scripture. The authors of the New Testament took this concept of the encounters people had and said, you thought what made them feel that Jesus was a tangible hope was because he made them walk or made them see or made them them, uh, uh, not hungry when they were hungry, but you're not looking rightly. The same experience they had about what truly identified Jesus as the tangible everyday experience of hope was not a change in their circumstances as the primary encounter. It was a clarity of who he made them and how he communicated that to them. And look how the New Testament authors begin to write this. Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I once was something, and now because I've encountered Christ, I am something else. Well, what something else am I? Okay, great. I love that. Can you explain? Actually, yes. So Paul writes, listen to this. In the book of Ephesians, listen to what he says here. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse, whoops, that's the wrong one. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens to God. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So listen to this. We are being grown into something profound that transcends the realities of the world. So what is that? What does that mean? Peter writes about that. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He actually brings this into a tangible, direct experience. Do you want to know what you've become? Because Jesus encountered you? Here it is. Here it is. Listen. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are now a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, what begins to happen if we understand this rightly is this, that we realize that once we know who we are in Christ and what he has done to change us, and we know which kingdom we belong to, it changes everything about how we understand, experience, and walk into the circumstances of this kingdom. Once we understand that because we belong to a kingdom that is eternal and because we are now a child of God, we understand that our current circumstances are one super temporal. You with me so far? They're like a breath. Good ones, bad ones, like a breath. And we understand, wait for it, that the bad ones, like a breath, are not just happening to us, but they are actually transforming us into a greater likeness of what we already are in Christ. So because we're in Christ, we transcend the circumstances because they're temporal. And when we encounter them, we become more like him. So listen carefully now. Once we know who we are, it is not that we don't live in the circumstances of our day, it's that we don't live under them anymore. Because we now begin to understand that they are not the means by which Jesus expresses his hopefulness toward us. That he, having changed us and told us about it, has shaped the way we experience our circumstances on this planet so that we live in them but not under them. And now our hope is not just about a future while enduring circumstances. Our hope is found in every circumstance that when it's good, we are grateful for his goodness because we understand the kingdom we belong to. And when they're not good, we are grateful that they're temporary and we're grateful that they are changing us into his likeness, which is our real hope now. And so suddenly we look at our circumstances and go, if you happen to change them for the better, that's like the cherry on top of a giant cake but I can live without the cherry because I have the cake. You see, our experience of Jesus is just as tangible today as theirs was because theirs wasn't actually about his ability to change their circumstances. It was equal to ours, his profound clarity that he changed them. So if we walk out of these doors today and we want to say, Jesus is my hope. Jesus embodies hope for me. Our job is not to look at our circumstances and go, well, is, is he? Our job is actually to say, hold on, hold on one second. Put the circumstances aside for a second. I need to remember who I am. See, I've been thinking this week. My job this week, entering into Christmas, to, to, to experience fully the reality that Jesus is, in fact, my hope, is not about looking at what he's doing for me or not doing for me. It's about looking at who I am in him. And so here's the deal. I need to do this. I need to figure out this week where my sentence needs to be. My name is Neo. Except instead of Neo, I might put it this way. My name 
his holy nation. My name is royal priesthood. My name is child of the most high God. My name is alien and stranger of this planet. My name is one belonging to God. My name is recipient of light. My name is recipient of life. My name is freedom because of Jesus. See, I need to start with the weight on my back saying, look, nobody cares about you, Mr. Renault. Look, I need to go, you got the wrong guy. I used to be Mr. Renault, but now I'm child of God. And I have something bigger than anything here. When Jesus changes us, we are safe even when we are in danger. We are free even when we are in prison. And we are alive even when we are dying. That's crazy. And that's our hope. So it's fair to say, is it not? That Jesus doesn't give us hope. That Jesus is our hope. Because who we are is only true because of who he is and who he made us and who he says we are now. So our hope is embedded in who he's made us and he is our hope. So may we walk into this Christmas every day declaring to our own souls, my name, my name is child of God. So whatever I might find myself in, I do not find myself under because I live in a different kingdom with a different king. And that kingdom isn't just a future hope. It's a present reality because I know what it is and I know where I belong. This is my hope. Jesus is my hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us and the incredible way in which you constantly show us through the encounters people had while you were on this planet that they didn't have it any more profoundly than we do. That yes, they could engage with you circumstantially in ways that I'm sure were quite amazing. But in the end, what changed them was not you making them walk or see or taking their hunger away or setting them free from prison. It was in every encounter the way you profoundly changed them from who they were to who you made them and then showed them that and then set them free to live a life utterly different. May we be a people this week that continually remind our own souls through the declaration of what we know to be true from Scripture. Not what you've done for us, though we can certainly do that, but who you've made us and what you've said we are now so that we might live in whatever circumstances we find ourselves this Christmas not under them, but transcendent of them because we know they are temporal and they are doing a good work in us, making us more like you, which is where we will find our true freedom anyway, being more like you. So God, show us the way to constantly remind ourselves that we are yours and that makes us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.